You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 11. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandy Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. Today, my co-host is Misty Winkler. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and a love for projects. She writes about feeding a family at Simplified Pantry, about homeschooling and homemaking at Simply Convivial, and about organizing attitudes at Simplified Organization. This episode of the Scalay Sisters podcast is brought to you by The Confident Homeschooler. The Confident Homeschooler is a short, action-item-packed resource that will help you to make the most of your homeschool day. You can purchase the Kindle version of The Confident Homeschooler in the Amazon Kindle store or download a free copy of the 30-minute audiobook at edsnapshots.com slash confidenthomeschooler. That's all one word, so edsnapshots.com slash confidenthomeschooler. On today's show, Misty and I discuss the ancient Latin motto, multum non multa, meaning much, not many. Applied to education, and sometimes misapplied to education, we chat about who used the motto in reference to education, what they meant, and what this has to do with Charlotte Mason and the Latin-centered curriculum. We also bring up the unmentionable, the dangers of taking a minimalistic approach to life and homeschooling. What can we say? We might have pushed the envelope a teeny tiny bit. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Today's School A RDA is going to be a little bit different because we're both doing the same book. Yes. We're going to use Mere Motherhood by Cindy Rollins. It's her new book, which we both fell in love with. And so instead of fighting over who gets to use it, we're just going to both share our favorite quotes <laughs> like civilized people. <laughs> I'm really curious about what you picked because we might have picked the same things too. That would be. Funny. That was one of the thoughts going through my mind. <laughs> what can I pick that Misty won't pick? So I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of mine was, it's near the end. She's talking about when her older kids were graduating and kind of going on to a life that she hadn't expected. You know, her oldest son went mm. to the Navy. It says, I, I sat in morning time and cried. It seemed like I had worked passionately for 19 years on a beautiful product, and in the end, he had become something entirely different than I intended. I did not recognize him at all. How could I go on creating beautiful pottery pieces if they weren't going to turn out as I intended or hoped? But life being what it is, I still had to get up in the morning and pretend. I kept on pretending, my passion and vision in tatters, until one day I had an epiphany. I was not the potter. A potter was shaping my children, but it was not me. I had forgotten what Charlotte Mason wrote, children are born persons. Until that moment, I had not heard her with my heart nor truly understood with my mind. My son was not my product. He was the work of a great artist, the creator of all. 
it was a glorious moment. Mm, I did almost choose that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember when she shared that on her blog years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think my oldest at that time was something like eight. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, <laughs> I do think that way. <laughs> so yeah. I remember that being a revelation. And it's come back to me, you know, through the years, too, as he's gotten older. And okay, step back. You know, that's, I think, one of the reasons why I love this book so much is I started reading Cindy's blog when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it felt like going through a family photo album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because it, it, it's so many of the stories I was thinking, oh, I've heard this story before. But to have it all in context. Yeah, that's what I was that just way, say, in context. Yeah. Like I remember the leaf explosions. I specifically remember <laughs> one of those because I was kind of horrified. I still had really little kids and I thought, what in the world? <laughs> now I have older kids. I totally get it. <laughs> so we were both talking before this and I did not mark any quotes the first time. I read it once and I just binge read it. I just not in one sitting. But I think it was two. So I was trying to find my quotes and I couldn't find them. But there was one where she said something like, you know, there are young moms and there are middle moms and there are older moms. And mm. I couldn't find it and I still can't. Okay, <laughs> she's up looking. But, <laughs> you know, the, the middle moms are the ones where they start realizing that this is not exactly going as they intended and they start getting scared. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she calls you and I out at the end as being moms who are getting older. So I guess we are definitely yeah. in that. <laughs> like, oh no, this is this is not life is not what I expected. I talked to her on Facebook about that. I said, "What exactly do you mean by we're getting older?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny too because just recently I was listening to a talk by um, Rachel Jankovic. Uh-huh. She was talking about identity, and she said there's this not quite sweet spot, but kind of this sweet spot in life where you're getting older, but you don't realize it yet. <laughs> <laughs> that we kind of think of as our true selves or something. Or we, right. we think of our 20 something selves as our true selves, but you get older and you don't, but you don't realize it yet. And you still think of yourself as your 20 something self until you wake up one day and realize that you aren't. So it was one of those, oh, wait a second. <laughs> I wonder, so is there no actual 30 something self? <laughs> there's the 20 something, there's the 30 that thinks they're 20 something, and then there's the shocked 40 something. Is that it? <laughs> Maybe that's why 40 is hard. <laughs> I've heard that the 40th birthday is hard. Maybe that's why. <laughs> well, one of my quotes comes from the section where she's talking about going through adolescence. And of course, I have a 14-year-old son, so I was yes. very intrigued because it's like the great unknown. She talks about there kind of being two halves of it and the second half being more difficult because the second half is more about them becoming... The first half, it sounded like, is about hormones, right? their voice is changing, their body is changing, they get kind of cranky or whatever. But then the second half is more the actual pulling away because they're becoming a man. Mm-hmm. And that was just a lot to think about and take in there. Because <laughs> I feel like we're like really getting close to that part. I mean, I, we're probably still like two years away, but it's not that far. But one part that jumped out at me, it's just one sentence, but I kind of felt like, oh, I really need to take this to heart. <laughs> she said, the anxiety of a worried mother does not instill the boy man with confidence. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I really need to be careful because I think I sometimes express my worries out loud a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And it's about dumb stuff. Like, <laughs> It's not like I think someone's going to die or something. <laughs> it's like really dumb stuff. 
But they're the ones doing the dumb stuff, right? That's true. And when teenage boys get together, I was telling my husband this, there's like this instant drop in IQ. (laughs) Like at least a 20 point drop of the collective IQ in the room when they're all together. Yeah. When she said there were two phases, it's like, oh, there's more coming. (laughs) Right. we're, We're just... Right on the end, I think, of that first phase with my oldest. Okay. Whew. Oh, I can't say who yet. <laughs> really? Well, I would love to pick her brain more about that sometime because I kind of feel like, how do you balance this whole, like, you still have a child in the home and we need to have some rules. They're becoming independent and pulling away and that's all really healthy. I don't really know how to navigate that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if I should, re- she quotes that book, um, Age of Opportunity, and I even have it on my shelf. I own that one too. And it's funny that I, so I started reading that. I think my oldest was nine when I first picked it up and I started reading it and I was like, this guy's got like problem kids or something. (laughs) 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 And I put it back on the shelf. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. So when you mentioned that one, I said, okay, maybe I should give it another shot now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Really? You want to share another quote? Okay. I have another one. Okay. For me, the years did roll by, and they're rolling by for you too. You're never going to have a lot of time, but you do have a little time here and a little time there, and those little times add up to a life. I really thought about that mm-hmm. after I read that, about a lot of things. I mean, the things we're putting off because we think maybe some other time we'll have more time. Mm-hmm. But then also how sometimes the days feel like they slip through our hands. Oh, and yeah. Did I really do anything important with my day? <laughs> You know, all I did was laundry and dinner and breaking up fights between people. And mm-hmm. and it was good because that was also in the context of my real spiritual reserve comes from a lifetime of daily Bible reading, not complicated Bible study. Um, forget the grand schemes, forget what the Konos mom is doing down the street and start giving that thing one or two minutes of your time daily and watch the years roll by. So I thought that was a great perspective because I do definitely tend to overcomplicate things. Well, it was funny, too, because I had just been thinking, okay, you know, reading the Bible, maybe I should do something, see other people's plans or whatever, and I should figure out some scheme. But then I just never start. And then I don't do anything at all. And I was like, no, just just read, copy a few verses. That's all okay. Just keep it simple. Just do it. (laughs) Actually, I want that to be kind of my theme for school this year, making it the priority to do it instead of trying to do it just right just or whatever. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that does end up being paralyzing where then you end up not doing anything at all because it's too difficult <laughs> right. to do it right, you know, capital R, right. Right. Oh, absolutely. Or tiring. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get tired just thinking about it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so how about you? Uh, My other favorite quote in here was also near the end, or actually when I was trying to find my quotes, this one, Mm -hmm. it was hard to pass up. (laughs) (laughs) She, in context, she's talking about memory work and what's the purpose of the trivium. And so she's telling us what she got out of a book that I keep thinking I need to read. And that is Stratford Caldecott's Beauty and the Word. Have you read that one? I have not read that one, but I own it. So I guess we need to read it. We should read it sometime, I think. This really made me want to read it when I read. It's not a quote from him. It's just kind of what she took away. Mm -hmm. But she said that he uses the word remembering instead of the word memory work. Yes. And so then she says, when Caldecott used the word remembering in place of the word grammar, everything began to make sense. 
she's referring to the idea of the grammar stage, Mm -hmm. to come together. Morning time was for remembering, and remembering is the most profoundly significant thing we do in education. If we are going to have a dialectic stage and a rhetoric stage, which don't produce monsters, then we are going to have to build it all on a platform of remembrance. Remembrance includes memorizing, but it is ever so much more. It is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug, as Samuel Clemens used to say. If we understand the difference between memorizing and remembrance, then it will help us choose what to memorize. Remembrance is culture. It is all that has come before that makes us the kind of people we are. To not remember is to commit cultural suicide, which is what we see when we look at our culture today. I don't want to start you into a panic with my hand ringing, but if we don't understand our times, then we will have nothing left to do but wring our hands. Which is a good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, that tale, I think that dovetails really well with what we're going to talk about in this episode today. But also, you know, where she says it produces monsters. The quote that I just recently read from The Great Tradition, the giant book with a whole bunch of excerpts from people from right. Plato to modern times on classical education. And I just had underlined this bit from Seneca, who said, this unseemly pursuit of the liberal arts what he means by an unseemly pursuit is where you're just going for gobs of information mm. um, as opposed to wisdom, pursuing it for wisdom. He says, this unseemly pursuit of the liberal arts makes men troublesome, wordy, tactless, self-satisfied bores who fail to learn the essentials just because they have learned the non-essentials. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think I might have met some people like that. Yeah. <laughs> And then found a Charlotte Mason quote that dovetailed with that. Um, It cannot be too often said that information is not education. Amen. That is true. But it's easy to mix them up because information is something we can test. Yes. That idea of what do the words mean in classical education, the grammar, dialectic, all those things, we can take them a lot of different ways, especially since we're so far removed from the time where people were talking about it. I think we run a danger of misinterpreting what they're saying, you know, what the classical or medieval writers mean when they say things like their threefold way, the grammar, dialectic, rhetoric, or multum, non-multa. And we take these little phrases that we can latch onto, but then interpret them in maybe more modern ways or more narrow ways than they were intended. And we kind of really start getting off track, which is yeah, kind of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Good transition. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you should be in charge today. (laughs) Uh, No, because you were the one with the brilliant insight. (laughs) Well, okay. So that's a funny story because you told me that this was in my Aquinas talk. So yesterday I went and read through the text of my Aquinas talk and I'm like, really? (laughs) I don't see it. It'll be interesting to see what she says. (laughs) And this morning you're all, never mind. It's in your other, your what's love got to do with it talk. And I'm like, I don't remember that talk very well. Well, don't worry. I wrote down your quotes. <laughs> uh, thanks, I, because I yeah, you gave, don't remember. You gave these talks at the Seattle conference, uh, What's yes. Love Got to Do With It, and the Aquinas talk, which are both wonderful, and they're for sale on your site, and everyone should go listen to them. <laughs> Shameless. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember you just say, and it was like this one line, and I felt like just stopping the whole room. And for both of these. Okay, so I realized, I listened to the Aquinas talk, and I said, okay, it was brilliant, but... 
that there wasn't that bit that I remembered. <laughs> <laughs> the Aquinas brilliance was just how you seamlessly wove Charlotte Mason and classical education together. Like they really are the same. We're talking about the same thing. She's talking about classical education, classical education, the same categories. This is just the historical perspective on what education is from Aquinas to Charlotte Mason. And then that's what we're trying to recover now. That's what the classical educators are trying to recover now. And you just did it as if it was no thing. So (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, thanks. I I still wasn't aware that it was a big deal until right now. It helps to be completely oblivious. (laughs) (laughs) So multum, non-multa, and I always have to double check I like getting the words in the right order. I know (laughs) that the declensions are confusing. (laughs) (laughs) It means much, not many. And it's a principle of classical education. And it comes from a letter that Pliny the Younger wrote or Pliny the Older wrote to Pliny the Younger. I can never keep that. I actually got a copy of it. Pliny the Younger wrote it as a letter of advice to someone named Tuscus. Okay. And I have no idea who that is or if that person is significant. (laughs) And so what he was getting at is that you should read really good books well and multiple times rather than reading everything possible. So deep, not broad or not everything. You don't have to read everything. You have to read what's good. But Right. What the, that's the difficulty with mottos or little catchphrases is that it's really easy to just latch on to the little saying and then maybe take it in a different direction. I mean, one of the Charlotte Mason versus classical conversations, you know, people pull this one up as a place where they contradict because classical education says multum non multa, much not many, or less is more, or just do a few things really, you know, dive deep into just a really few things. Whereas Charlotte Mason right. is all about spreading the broad feast. Right. You know, and I, I was not aware of this letter from Pliny the Younger. I actually emailed Karen Glass back when she was writing her book because I kind of told her, well, I will torture you into writing more chapters by emailing you complicated <laughs> questions. <laughs> and so that was one of mine is that I did not see how these things fit, even though I had a deep appreciation for the idea of much, not many. Mm-hmm. I really didn't see how that went with, we were covering all these different topics all of the time and we're switching back and forth between books. So you're covering a number of subjects in a single day. And you know, it's oh, like- And you're doing the Charlotte Mason model. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So like, how would those things fit? That was one of my big questions. And so the first thing she did was send me a quote from Pliny the Younger. And it was actually not the place where he actually uses the phrase multum non multa. It's further up in the letter- where he talks about broad reading. He says, as land is improved by sowing it with various seeds constantly changed, so is the mind by exercising it now with this subject of study, now with that. Mm. It was interesting because she was saying the phrase multum non multa applied to education is in that context. It's in the context of saying you need to have all these different subjects. You're constantly changing. And so that sort of got my attention, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's way different from what I expected. I've heard so many people use it to justify, we're going to study just the three R's plus Latin. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, back in the day, I read the Latin-centered curriculum, which is very much based on a certain interpretation of multum non multa, where it is you just do these very few things all the time and for a long time. 
And I've never read that. Yeah, I read it. And it's like I wanted to like it, but then I just didn't. <laughs> That's quite a book review. I, love I can see this on Goodreads. I wanted to like this book, but just didn't. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> this is the book that's going to tell me, okay, we can do this. It'll be easy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, it's true. It is harder to have to have a broader view, I think. I mean, for those of us who are teaching, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not so sure it's as hard for the kids. I've heard of that book, but I don't think I really realized that it was based on an interpretation of multum non multa. Yeah. I think that would be the foundational principle of what he was trying to do was apply Mm -hmm. multum non multa in that way where you're only doing classical studies. Right. So there is a Charlotte Mason quote, and it's really interesting because she, in it, she talks about Latin grammar. To me, it just brings out like she's in this same conversation. She's not starting right. her own conversation. She says, we need to get rid of the notion that to learn the three R's or the Latin grammar well, a child should learn these and nothing else. It is as true for children as for ourselves that the wider the range of interests, the more intelligent is the apprehension of each. One thing that strikes me in that quote is that it's the same conversation that people have today or that there are the same camps in education, like the back to basics, three R's, and then the more like the Latin centered curriculum types are, you know, the Latin grammar well. (laughs) We, We still have those same ideas rolling around today. I think that's what always strikes me is I'm trying to do more and more of what C.S. Lewis suggested in his introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, where he talks about for every modern book you read, you should read an older book. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, and he, by older, he defines older. I can't remember how many hundreds of years old, but like oh, he defined older. I want to say it was maybe even 200. I felt like it was pretty old, like it was older than I expected. But of course, you know, we're farther in the future than him. <laughs> so we don't have to go as far back as he had to go to meet that criteria. <laughs> so I'm patting myself on the back, you know, <laughs> early 1800s. We're good. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but that is one of the things that strikes me is now, I mean, obviously, I'm sure they had many things that have now been lost to history that were very locked in their own time. But the things that have survived to us from history, it is, it's the same, it's always the same conversation. And it always seems to me like those who are devoted to what we consider to be like a true view of education are almost always, it seems like they're almost always in the minority. Mm. They're always responding and they're always looking at the state of education around them and saying, this is a mess and we need to fix it. So I'm thinking like education has been a mess for at least 2000 years. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a my take. <laughs> Like, I think it's sort of like when Jesus says, you know, the poor will always be with you. There's certain things about the world that are just part of living in a fallen world, you know? Education will always be a mess. (laughs) Yes. I'm wondering, like, that should be right there. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it should be in the Bible. No, but (laughs) I have wondered that, though. If it's like, you know, the main, the popular view of education will always be kind of off. And then there will always be the prophets trying to put it back on. I don't know. I don't know that I'm right. I like it. Even though I tried to canonize myself earlier in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I really liked this line from the Karen Glass article. So you wrote Karen Glass and she ended up writing a blog post for you before her book came out. Yes. And when you did a series on Charlotte Mason myths. Right. So she wrote... 
The multum non multa principle is one of those ideas that must be balanced, of course, because if less is more is taken too far, it becomes less is not enough. One mm -hmm. cannot keep cutting and cutting and assume that less and less is always better. At some point, there must be a fairly ideal amount, which is neither too much nor too little. There is really right now, I think it's kind of part of that minimalist movement. Yes. And it, that really does that can touch kind of every part of life education or just your what's in your home or yeah, holidays, all that kind of stuff where there's a real push or, you know, the trendy idea is that less and less and less is better. Just cut it down to the bare, bare minimum and that's going to be better. And I don't think that's actually true. Right. Well, it is an interesting question of do we see that in scripture? Is there a principle? I mean, obviously, there's basic things about, you know, we don't want to be materialistic right. or whatever. But do we really see in scripture the obligation to continue to cut everything back to the bare bones or to feel guilty for enjoying abundance mm -hmm. at some points or whatever? I don't know. It's an, it, it's an interesting question because one of the key aspects of Charlotte Mason's philosophy is this idea of being generous, mm -hmm. cutting back and cutting back in all different areas of life can really be not always. I mean, it depends on the heart. It's so complicated yeah. because it's a heart condition, but I mean, it really can be selfishness or stinginess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It would be really easy for me to go and minimize the things that are in the playroom at my house. Right. I would love to only have wood blocks. And that's all the only toys we had. That would make my life so much easier. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would not be good for my children. Well, and I can even be tempted to do that in the day. So when they, when all the different kinds of toys want to get out and play together. Yes. <laughs> which happens less in my house now because my youngest is almost eight. So it's not happening nearly as much. But we had blocks that had been made into roads for cars this week. And then there weren't enough roads with the blocks. So we also had to pull multiple books off the shelves to make more roads. Mm -hmm. And so there's like books and blocks. And, and don't forget the guys. Yes, because half of the roads need to be inside of some sort of fort. Tunnel, yeah. And so, you know, you walk by and you're already stressed out. And you're like, oh, my gosh, there's all this stuff everywhere. Or like me, you stub your toe on something and get mad at everybody because um, I have an anger problem when I stub my toe. <laughs> so in that minute, my temptation to, quote, unquote, minimize all of this stuff is actually just me not being an understanding parent mm -hmm. at that point. So, I mean, there's a place for it. I'm sure there are plenty of kids that have too much stuff, but I'm not sure that that's what's going on in my house. In fact, I'm right. positive it's not. Right. So just because it is possible doesn't mean that's necessarily the problem we are dealing with. Right. In our homes. Yes. So then with education, then it is the problem really that we're doing too much. It might be. But then again, it might not be. So I think it's the same kind of thing where we have to really look at ourselves and be realistic about what the problem actually is. Because I could be feeling overwhelmed because we're trying to do too much, or I could be feeling overwhelmed because I'm really not making this a priority and I'm trying to fit it in around all this other stuff, mm -hmm. right? Or, I mean, there's a million possibilities. So that's just one of many. Multum non multa can be used as a license to just keep cutting. Okay, so let's look at the context. Pliny the Younger, what he actually says is very interesting because I've just heard it as a motto. Right. Multum non multa. I've never heard it in context until I read this. He's quoting someone else. Oh, come to think of it. Okay. He's quoting, oh goodness, I looked it up. It might even be Seneca. Oh, really? Interesting. It might be quoting Seneca. I feel like I researched this because I realized the first time I read this, 
it was not in quotes, but I remember thinking, it seems like he's quoting someone. And then later I saw Benjamin Franklin said, one should read much, but not many books or something like that. And so he was getting, Benjamin Franklin was getting credit for this. Huh. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like, <laughs> like that sounds a lot like Pliny the Younger. And so in, but Pliny the Younger is quoting someone else. And so it seems like it was pretty well understood that multum non multa was referring to books, not subjects. Okay, I am. I did a quick Google search and to say that the quote is Pliny the Younger, but the concept is Seneca's rule, multum non multa. Fascinating. I can't wait till you read that section. I think that I did just read that section <laughs> because it, it's translated. So I don't know what it was, it what didn't use that phrase or anything, but the section in Seneca was saying that he was saying that you shouldn't know everything about one subject. It was actually against specialization. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> like, this doesn't even seem like it fits. <laughs> well, what Pliny the Younger says, so he's writing this advice to someone who has asked him how to self-educate or whatever. And so... He says, remember to be careful in your choice of authors of every kind. For, as it has been well observed, though we should read much, we should not read many books. And then he goes on to say, who those authors are is so clearly settled and so generally known that I need not particularly specify them. And then he kind of just finishes up his letter at that point and goes into trivialities or whatever. But it reminded me so much of Charlotte Mason. Yeah. We should be reading the best books. We don't need to read. So we don't need to go to the library and say, we're going to learn about, you know, the French Indian War. And so I'm going to pick out 20 books. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that's a thing, right? Right. To go to the library and pick out like 20 books on this one area of history or whatever. Read all the books the library has. Yeah. Right. And he's, be careful in your choice of authors. We should read much, but we should not read many books and we should read the best authors. And that is just fascinating in context. And then that it's also tied back to Seneca because mm-hmm. he was saying in the section that I just read that people study too minutely in single subjects when in order to have wisdom, you should know about them and have what Charlotte Mason would have said, you know, a relation with them or be able to make connections between them, but not know every single nitty gritty detail about any one particular subject. So it really is a section against specialization and only reading everything on one topic, which is really what Pliny is saying there. And then, Mm -hmm. but then that much, not many ends up being, you know, maybe taken out of context or just misunderstood to almost mean the opposite. The way I've seen it mostly has been applied to subjects instead of books. books. So we should limit the number of subjects. We're allowed to maximize the number of books, but we're just going to be very, very narrow in the the subjects subjects that we're studying. When what Pliny is saying, be particular with your books, but not your subjects. And that's definitely what Seneca was saying also. And then that's definitely what Charlotte Mason is saying. A smiling, read one book over one or two years. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing is that, you know, when you're looking at her science, I've been looking more what she was doing with science and, you know, (laughs) she's going through a year and it's like crazy the number of science topics that she's covering. You know, it's geology and it's oceanography and it's (laughs) astronomy and it's a little bit of physical science, a little bit of botany, a little bit of biology. It's like she, you know, with the upper grades, especially it's, you just can't even believe how many different topics she's touching on. And it's so very different 
from how we Americans are saying, okay, for ninth grade, we're going to set aside the whole year for physical science. And then for 10th grade, we're going to set aside the whole year for biology, right? And we, Mm -hmm. so if we do four years of science, we're going to do physical science, biology, chemistry, and physics to the exclusion of all other kinds of science. And we're going to go really deep on that. And we're going to not spend any time on the other things. And by the way, my understanding is that other Western countries don't actually do it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, That this is a distinctly American thing. How very different what she was doing compared to what we do. I mean, and, and that goes for everything. It was very distinct with science because it's, we're just so narrow in what we even think of as science. Right. And when you read science that way, or, you know, other topics too, but I think we can see it, especially with science, you end up not making those connections or seeing those relationships between disciplines because they're this own little box. First, you take out one box and they play together, but they don't play with the other toys. <laughs> you don't get right. you don't get to pull everything out and mix it all up. You just pull out the one box and you're only allowed to play with this one thing for a long time right. and then put it away and then pull out something right. else. I've encountered a lot of this lately where someone has gone really deep and detailed in a single subject and the result seems to be becoming like super analytical. Mm. And, you know, we talked before about backing up and doing more of the poetic knowledge, the synthetic, what Karen Glass calls synthetic knowledge versus just the analytical. I'm not that the analytical is bad at all, but it seems like it's all just very self-referential. And the person, oh, so they've been playing with the box so long, it's like they're trapped in the box. Right. There are no other boxes that matter. No. And they can't even see it. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, I don't even know what to say because all I can think in the back of my head is this person desperately needs to read more broadly. Mm-hmm. It's just really sad. It's not a problem that's easily solved either in adulthood because the time to read for reading is so limited. Childhood is just so important for starting on this path mm-hmm. because how do you learn to branch out when you're 40 years old and mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have very limited reading time anyway? You know, it's so much easier to read the things that are already inside of your box. Mm-hmm. I think you have to homeschool your children and then then those things start coming out. <laughs> oh, my I found word. That yes. true. <laughs> so I'm going to quote one of my favorite educational thinkers, Brandy Vinsel. Oh, my. And in her talk, what's love got to do with it? She says, the wider the reading, the deeper the children will be able to go. Did I really say that? <laughs> yes, I listened to it three times to make sure the quote was exactly right. And when you said that at the conference, I was like, she just. That's multum non multa, the multum non multa controversy right there. Just like, <laughs> fixed. <laughs> the wider the reading, the deeper the children will be able to go. It is kind of counterintuitive, right? Because yeah, we think, but it's you know, so true. Yeah, it really is. Um, I'm still shocked that I said that, but <laughs> <laughs> what like, you that were, was really good. <laughs> you were summarizing a longer quote. Oh, from okay. Charlotte Mason. I think. Oh, so. okay. That makes more sense. So it didn't actually come from me. It was her. <laughs> <laughs> you hear a lot of frustration when you read um, modern educators and they're inside of the school and the, they're talking about this lack of creativity that they see. So they want to like teach creative writing or they want to like try to make kids be creative or they have this notion that they can set up an environment that will encourage creativity. or whatever. And I mean, obviously I, there are things we can do to make space for creativity, I'm sure. But 
talking with neighbors and kind of finding out what's happening at the schools is that I, I think any lack of creativity that's going on is because they're just not reading widely. Like there's nothing to come out. Mm-hmm. If you think about some of the most creative acts, it seems to be this cross pollination. It's across right. disciplines. It's a, it's I, one idea connecting to a similar idea, but like in a totally different subject or whatever. I mean, that's analogical thinking, right? right. Being able to see to how these by analogy. Yeah. Right. We're able to see how one thing that is so unlike this other thing is also the same. And that requires wide reading. And, you know, like my neighbor girls, <laughs> oh, they're so sweet. But they were told by the school librarian that they're not allowed to read history until sixth grade. Oh, my word. And so they asked for something because my children, for some reason, are obsessed with the story of Bloody Mary in an <laughs> island story. I don't even, it's like humiliating to say this. But anyway, <laughs> so they actually took the book outside and read it to the girls. And so then the girls, I guess, went to the librarian and asked for a history book because they thought that was really interesting. They were told, no, they have to read inside their own reading level and they have the shelf and that's where they have to stay. And oh my goodness. It was just so sad. And I mentioned it on Facebook and pretty much the response was, well, yeah, you didn't know that the world is that way. And I'm like, <laughs> No, because when I was in school, I mean, I remember going and saying, I'd like a book like this. And the librarian was helpful. (laughs) Here, here's three books that are like what you were describing. You know, I was never told, no, you can't have that book, you know? Wow. And And that's supposed to encourage reading? How? Yeah, really. So, so my kids read history to the neighbor children. (laughs) Now they like do this regularly. I mean, now these girls have wonderful parents who expand them outside of school. So they're not limited to school. But I think so many families that are, their kids are just limited to what they're getting in school. And if school's like, you can't read history until you're, what is that? 11? Oh my gosh. That's crazy. So no wonder there's no creativity if that's how we're doing things. I the same thing when I was teaching writing classes for several years. And this was to homeschool kids. They weren't coming from those kind of situations, but there was a really wide range then of what they were doing. They were just, you know, different homeschools are different. And there were definitely kids that read more than others. And there were workbook families and there were unschooling families and there were all the different kinds. So it was just kind of, okay, my kid needs to learn how to write. They'll put them in your class. I definitely saw that kids who read aren't necessarily going to be automatically great writers. But if Mm. kids have not read or do not read, there is no way they're going to become good writers. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) I was like, they have nothing to say. They don't. Right. They just, to pull together a paragraph, it's a creative thing. And you can't just regurgitate what you read as a research or whatever. It's because that's really flat. You have to be able to pull some things together. And if you have nothing to pull on, you can't write, period, end of story. (laughs) Like, I I don't know what to do with you. So to tell you, okay, you don't need a writing class. You need to just spend a couple years reading a lot, a lot of different kinds of things, not just one thing, but lots of things. Right. If you want to be able to write. I really like that. (laughs) I mean, just your idea that it doesn't automatically make them a good reader. Because I think sometimes I fall off that side of the horse that where I'm thinking like, well, if I could just get them to read a lot, then it'll all take care of itself. And that's not necessarily true. And but it's easy for me to try to think that. Right. It's kind of like, say, with art, if they've seen a lot of paintings, that's not going to make them a good artist. Right. But if they're practicing the skills of painting and drawing and those things, then... 
seeing a lot of art and studying art will help them in their own practice. But just looking doesn't make their skills better. Writing is a skill. So, oh, and there we have it with uh, reasoning by analogy, which you have to have things to draw on to be able to do right. that. Totally. I was looking at Karen's thing to see if there's, you know, Karen's post ends with that quote from Charlotte Mason. Charlotte Mason's own advice is, and this is from Philosophy of Education, the best available book is chosen for a subject and read through in the course. It may be of two or three years. Mm-hmm. It was so in line with Pliny the Younger. It is. You know. So Charlotte Mason's broad education, spreading the feast, is exactly what the original intent of that classical education principle meant by multum non multa. There is absolutely no contradiction. It's actually the exact same thing. Yeah. So the contradiction is us. Yeah. <laughs> and, and our confusion. <laughs> yeah. And taking things out of context. Right. Which is so easy to do. Mm-hmm. All right. We probably should move on to the nitty gritty homeschool question. Okay. I'm thinking, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So we're doing something different this time. Also, <laughs> like we just changed everything this time. So you and I are taking two different questions, partly because you got a question directed at you. Yes. And so um, we'll start with you. And I cannot remember who left this question. I'm sorry. But question is, Misty mentions that her kids help with cooking and meal prep. Can you talk more about that? My school-aged kids are almost six and almost eight. What can I do to teach them those life skills while already so busy with school and life? I could use the help with two other littles running around. The bad news is that almost six and almost eight-year-olds really aren't helpful in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) what you do with them at this point will help them become helpful. But I think that helpfulness starts growing exponentially when they hit 10 and up. (laughs) Would you say 10? I think it depends on the personality. That was true. Well, and it might be with oldest children too. I'm like, that was definitely true with my two older children, but my almost eight-year-old made me breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) like he has totally learned how to scramble eggs and heat up sausage and all this stuff and so well he's seen other kids doing that kind of thing he's just coming along so i think when you're talking about oldest children it takes more work totally because definitely well when my oldest two were those ages they were more of a hassle in the kitchen Mm -hmm. than anything else Mm mm-hmm But still having them there, I am always tempted to just say, no, I'm in the kitchen. You go do your own thing. Leave me alone in the kitchen. But that does end up being, that's shooting yourself in the foot in the long run. Because if they, you know, if you have a time where, A, they want to be with you, B, they want to be helpful, you have to just take a deep breath and let them come alongside and at least watch. That was one Watchword I used a lot was watching is helping because then you're seeing how it's done. Like you have to watch how it's done before you know how to do it. So I would set them up on the counter or whatever and say, okay, you can help. Watching is helping. (laughs) Oh, that is brilliant. (laughs) But then eventually, you know, yeah, around eight, they have to start helping. And so stirring, they love to stir and they make a mess and it's, it's just more messy. So we would sometimes do dinner helper. So you have one day a week per child and they're Mm. your dinner helper. So you try to find the little jobs they can do, whether that's, you know, I cut it and then they put it in the bowl or they help stir. Um, Eventually they can help cut depending on the thing. Probably around eight, I start letting them 
use a knife and just triple the amount of time that it takes, <laughs> which is so oh my hard. Gosh. It's so hard. It is. And even still when my 11-year-old or 13-year-old, almost 13, they'll do dinner and they can do it by themselves. And it's not going to be the same as if I were going to do it. You know, the biscuits might be flatter and all those things, but it's edible. It's good. We just don't say anything. Praise them that they did it all themselves. Right. What I forget to do is start them twice as early as I would start. Because for me, it it doesn't take me as long because I just know what to do. And I know how to do things. And I have a lot of practice. And they don't. And so it's just going to take them longer. And they're going to make a bigger mess. And that's the way it works. So I don't don't know if that's actually helpful. It's more of a reality check than a secret tip to make it all easy. I think it's helpful because (laughs) the truth is that investing at these ages are what make for everything to be more helpful later on. When they are so excited about it is when you want to start bringing them along. Giving the three-year-old a chore is so important because they are so excited to be helpful and doing something real at that age that you want to capitalize on it then and not just tell them to go play. And then when they're six or eight, tell them, okay, now you have to do chores. So true. <laughs> it's a lot of work and it's exhausting and it'll be worth it in the end. Amen. <laughs> That's true. All right. So my question is, what do I do when my first grader is super jealous that her little brothers get to do fun stuff like stickers and Play-Doh to stay entertained while she has to do copy work and phonics? I let her do fun stuff a lot, but eventually you got to learn the schooly stuff too. <laughs> That's true. I had this problem, not in first grade, because when my oldest was in first grade, my younger kids were still young enough that they didn't seem like that much fun. But I want to say about third grade-ish, so he's still doing school and the newness of school had worn off. And now those children that were just babies and toddlers when he started school were at fun ages where they're all playing together and doing all this stuff. (laughs) And I remember him being like, how come they get to do that and I have to do this, <laughs> you know? And I, you know, I really don't know that there's a great answer to this. I mean, I did have some people tell me to try to separate it a little bit. So it's not like all going on in the same room because then it's not only distracting, but it's also just kind of inviting back comparison. Yeah, it's kind of encouraging the envy, maybe a little too much, like feeding the fire. Yeah. There. And so. I mean, I did do some things. I don't know how old these younger children are, but I did try to send them outside sometimes. Now we have a, you know, we have a fenced in backyard. I was not like sending them to their doom or something (laughs) out there, but just where they weren't like right there in his face, we're having fun and you don't feel that way right now. (laughs) But I also kind of feel like stuff like this, it's sort of like when it's not your birthday, it's someone else's birthday (laughs) and it's not your birthday And when you're little, you're kind of upset that it's not your birthday, too. You know what I mean? So I feel like there's a little bit of just trying to help them get through it. And so unfortunately, with my oldest child, I really couldn't say, well, when you were that age, you got to have fun because that wasn't really true. (laughs) (laughs) I was telling you this earlier, but like when he was, oh, gosh, three or two or something. I mean, I was like on bed rest. And then until he was in school, I was just pregnant and I would get very ill while pregnant. So I was just pregnant like all the time. (laughs) So I don't really think he had that much fun at all at that age. And I have, you know, suffered with feeling very guilty about all of that. But I feel like the reality is this is the life God has given to him. And so he has to be whatever he's called to be at that age. 
So he's called to be a student when he's in third grade, regardless of the fact that maybe he missed out on something when he was four. Mm-hmm. Right. My job was to sort of be the counselor and just say, you know, when you were young, you got to be young. Like I certainly wasn't making you do school at age four. And so now you're the age where you have to do school and that's just kind of life. And yep. so we'll try to go fast. We'll try to get it done and not take too long. And one thing that was helpful beyond multiple counseling sessions <laughs> was to just try to clear everybody out and have uninterrupted school so that school did not run long. Yeah. So that it felt like, okay, I understand your desire to not be doing this right now. <laughs> and so because of that, I'm going to make sure it doesn't last longer than it has to. Mm -hmm. And that can be a great motivator for them too to see, well, this isn't going to take all day. If we just do this, then you'll have plenty of time to do whatever it is that you're wanting to do. And then to really help them develop some self-motivation to not dawdle is super helpful where they see that they have some of that control as well. I'm also thinking it might be worthwhile to talk a little bit about jealousy and how that's just not good to allow that into our hearts too. I don't know. First grade's a little bit young to do that, depending on how things work out. Like if it's continuing and now you have an eight-year-old that's struggling with jealousy, we might need to have conversations about the sin issues (laughs) there. And that's the thing about life and homeschooling is you see those they come out so much more clearly or frequently or whatever. It doesn't get glossed over or shoved under the carpet as much. And we just have to embrace that as one of the benefits of homeschooling, even though it means a lot more work and it's harder. Having those talks and helping them see those kind of things and work through those kind of things, even though that takes time, is in the long run just as important or more important than the phonics. And that doesn't mean that the phonics doesn't need to happen, but it means that This is a part of the life that we're living and we shouldn't want to shove that under the carpet and just move on with our checklist. Right. You know, I have had children who have struggled with thinking that they're entitled to whatever anyone else has. And you're right. Dealing with that mindset is more important than getting our math lesson done for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if it's as simple, you know, like with a five or six year old, it might be as simple as saying, look, you're telling me that you think you should have this thing just because this person over here has this thing. That's just wrong. (laughs) And it might be as simple as that. Like just informing the child that you have a wrong idea in your head. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we're pretty much done with that question. So thank you for. This was fun. It was fun. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast goodness, we cannot thank you enough for your wonderful five-star reviews. I took some time last week to read them and they were so encouraging. We would love for you to keep them coming, of course. That's how we get the word out about the show. If you aren't yet on our email list, be sure to drop by scalaysisters.com and sign up. Misty does a fantastic job on our monthly newsletter. For our next episode, Kathy Wickward from Charlotte Mason West will be on the show. She and I have a wonderful discussion about making sure our kids encounter opposing points of view before they leave home. Kathy has her theories about how to do this well, so you will definitely want to catch that episode. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone, so open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Are you still there? Uh Uh-oh. Uh Uh-oh, what's going on here? Where did it go? Of course, I can't find it now that I need it. Are you joking me?
Is it gone? Oh, here it is. (laughs) (laughs) That would just be my luck, the way things are going today, that the entire thing is missing. Sorry, I was taking a drink of my iced tea. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to make you wait while I enjoy myself. No, I can find it again. Here we go. (laughs) I keep losing this. Um, Proof that I have too many windows up.